Amen. If you have a Bible, go with me to Jonah chapter 1, verse 17. Jonah chapter 1, verse 17. We'll be there uh, in just a minute as we're continuing to walk verse by verse through the book of Jonah. I read a story this week. Uh, an event happened a couple of years ago at a Chick-fil-A restaurant. The, a person had made their order, pulled up to the window to pay, and they paid for their order, and they said, also, I'd like to pay for the order behind me. And so they said, what did they get? And so they, they paid for the person behind them. And so they left, the person pulled up, and the cashier said, hey, the car in front of you paid for your meal. And so you don't, you don't have any charges. And they said, okay, I'd like to do that for the car behind me. And it started a, a chain to where each car that came through the drive-through, they wanted to pay for the car that was behind them. And it got up to 36 cars in a row that paid for the car behind them. And then the 37th car came up. Now, I, I don't know who that person was. I'm assuming it was a guy, because I don't see a, a, a gal doing this, but that 37th car pulled up and got ready to pay, and the cashier said, hey, sir, the car in front of you paid for you. In fact, for 36 cars in a row, they've paid for the car behind them, and all of the the, the employees in that Chick-fil-A were kind of huddled in the drive through area looking out the window, and they were excited. They're all saying, you know, they're chanting, 36, 36, 36. And the guy in the car says, okay, thanks, and takes his food and drives off without paying for the car behind him. Now, I'm sure he had his reasons, all right? Maybe he looked in his rearview mirror and the car behind him was a, you know, a homeschool conversion van <laughs> and they got the party platter of nuggets and, and uh, Chick-fil-A sauce and all, which there's a shortage of that now apparently, but um, and, and so I'm sure he had his reasons. But don't we all kind of like, when you, when you hear that story, don't we all kind of judge that guy? You know, like, hey, pal, 36 in a row, and you couldn't be troubled just to, to pay it forward. I mean, all those people, all of those people were kind to and, and loved on the people behind them, and you had your meal taken care of. You were getting a free lunch, and yet you couldn't pay it forward. You couldn't love on the car behind you. And here's the Here's the truth, you know, when, when we are shown mercy, it's not just so that we can keep that to ourselves, we're shown mercy so that we can, we can extend mercy to other people. Uh, when we are blessed, it's not so that we can take that blessing and keep it to ourselves, it's so that we can bless other people. And often in our lives, even though we have been shown mercy, even though we have been shown grace, even though we have been shown blessing, instead of extending that grace, that mercy, and that blessing to others, we hold on to it and we keep it for ourselves. And that really is kind of the heart of the story of the prophet Jonah. Jonah, as part of the people of Israel, is uh, one of those people in that nation who has been given the the, the covenant with God, where he has a personal relationship with God. He's been given the promises of God. He, he's been given all of these things. So he's part of the people of God. He's close to God. And all of that that God gave Jonah and all of that that God gave the people of Israel was so that they could extend that to the nations, be a light to the nations, so that everybody could experience what Israel was experiencing. And yet, instead of doing that, and instead of extending the mercy that they had been shown, they were keeping those things to themselves. And in the process, they were missing the heart of God. And when we take the mercy and the grace and the blessing that God has given us, and we keep it to ourselves, and we don't extend it to the people around us, we are missing the heart of God. And so I want to ask all of us to consider this question as we look at Jonah tonight, 
Will we share the mercy that we've been shown? Will we share the mercy that we've been shown? Jonah chapter 1 and verse 17. If you would please stand to your feet out of reverence for reading the words of God. We're going to read from verse 17 in chapter 1 all the way down through chapter 3, verse 3. And this is what God's Word says. And the Lord appointed a great fish to swallow up Jonah. And Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. Then Jonah prayed to the Lord his God from the belly of the fish, saying, I called out to the Lord out of my distress, and he answered me. Out of the belly of Sheol I cried, and you heard my voice. For you cast me into the deep, into the heart of the seas. And the floods surrounded me, all your waves and your billows passed over me. Then I said, I am driven away from your sight, yet I shall again look upon your holy temple. The waters closed in over me to take my life. The deep surrounded me, weeds were wrapped about my head at the roots of the mountains. I went down to the land whose bars closed upon me forever. Yet you brought up my life from the pit, O Lord my God. When my life was fainting away, I remembered the Lord, and my prayer came to you into your holy temple. Those who pay regard to vain idols forsake their hope of steadfast love, but I, with the voice of thanksgiving, will sacrifice to you what I have vowed I will pay. Salvation belongs to the Lord. And the Lord spoke to the fish, and it vomited Jonah out upon the dry land. Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it the message that I tell you. So Jonah arose and went to Nineveh according to the word of the Lord. Now, Nineveh was an exceedingly great city, three days' journey in breadth. May God bless the reading of His Word. You may be seated. Jonah, as we think about this story, and we looked at this a little bit last week, Jonah foolishly thinks that he can escape the presence of God. And we see clues as you're reading your Bible, if you, if you read the book of Jonah, which is really a literary masterpiece, you're going to see clues and you're going to see words that are repeated or words that kind of trigger you to see what is going on. And so Jonah, the, the text tells us there in chapter 1 that he, he wants to flee from, run away from the presence of the Lord. And we see this in many ways. God tells Jonah to go east and Jonah goes west. The text tells us that God is up, that the, the evil of the Ninevites came up before God. And what does Jonah do? We're told multiple times in chapter 1, Jonah goes down. He goes down to Joppa. He goes down into the boat. He goes down into the inner chambers of the boat. And then at the end of chapter 1, he goes down into the sea. And in chapter 2, we're told not only is he in the sea, he goes down to the base of the mountains that are in the sea. So like the furthest that you can go down, that's where Jonah goes. And so he wants to escape the presence of God, and so he goes in the opposite direction. And the text tells us there in verse 2 of chapter 2 that he ends up not just in the belly of the fish, but he ends up in the belly of Sheol. He ends up in the belly of death. And so God judges Jonah for his rebellion, and he does it with this great wind, great storm, and now a great fish that swallows him up. And one of the challenges that we have as uh, people, for any of you who have grown up in church, who've been in church anytime, uh, especially when you were children, we have to compete with the, the children's Bible version of the story of Jonah, the, the, as I call it, the VBSification of the story of Jonah, because for a lot of us, when we think about him spending three days and three nights in the belly of the fish, the picture in our minds, if you're my age or older, okay, because if you're younger than me, 
this may not mean anything to you unless you have Disney Plus and you've watched it. We think of Pinocchio, right? Geppetto is swallowed by the whale and he's in the belly of the whale and he's got his kerosene lamp and he's kind of sitting there and it's, it's really not all that un uncomfortable. You know, he's just, he's just kind of riding in the belly of the whale. He wishes he wasn't there, but it's not really a big deal that he's there. And it's just kind of this ship that's carrying him from one place to the other. And that's, that's the image that we get. But that's not what's happening when Jonah is swallowed by the fish. Uh, Chuck Swindoll says it this way, and this is very graphic, but I think it helps us understand exactly what's going on, exactly what's happening. He says it's, it's pitch black. Sloshing gastric juices wash over you, burning your skin, your eyes, your throat, your nostrils. Oxygen is scarce, and each frantic gulp of air is saturated with salt water. The rancid smell of digested food causes you to throw up repeatedly until you only have dry heaves left. Everything you touch has the slimy feel of the mucous membrane that lines the stomach of the fish. You feel claustrophobic. With every turn and every dive of the great fish, you slip and slide in the cesspool of digestive fluids. There are no footholds, no blankets to keep you from the cold, clammy depths of the sea. And when Jonah is finally released from the fish, no doubt these gastric juices have bleached his skin, no doubt they have corroded his hair, and for the rest of his life, he would live with the scars and the marks of the judgment of God from that fish. And yet, in the belly of the fish, Jonah cries out to God, he prays to God, and God miraculously and graciously, even though he's rebelled against God, God hears him and God answers his prayer. And this is very instructive. Not only does he pray, but if you go back and study, I don't have time to show you all the parallels and the links, but if you go back and study, Jonah's really calling from the Psalms when he's praying this prayer. He's, he's quoting Scripture and he's, he's quoting Scripture to God. And this is instructive for us when we go through the storms of life, when we go through the difficulties of life, the Bible should provide for us a vocabulary that we use to call out to God in our suffering. That's really what the Bible is. One of my pastor friends says it's, it's, it gives us the vocabulary of suffering so that we're able to, to take hold of these verses and claim these verses and, and use them as we cry out to God in confidence that He's going to hear us, that He's going to sustain us, that He's going to be with us. And so Jonah cries from the belly of the fish and God hears him. And we have a God who answers us in our distress. This is what he says, I called out to the Lord, I called out to Yahweh in my distress. And he answered me. Now, one of the things that this shows us is that God gave a command to Jonah. Jonah didn't like the command. He didn't trust the goodness of God in that command, and he, he wanted to run away from it. Okay? And he thought, you know what? What God wants for me is not best. I'm going to do what I want. But the story of Jonah teaches us that we don't always want what we think we want. And we don't always want what we wish for. What did Jonah want? Jonah wanted to flee from the presence of God. And so Jonah ends up as far from the presence of God as one can get, and yet that's not really what he wanted. I don't know about you, I don't know if you've ever uh, tried to run away or, or flee from something. When I was a kid, um, I was like four years old, and it wasn't like I was upset or anything, but uh, for whatever reason, when I was four years old, uh, one of those days, w when I was a kid in the summer, my, our best friend, uh, his mom was a single mom, and so she would go to work uh, during the school year and during the summer. And so we, my mom would keep her son every day. So every day in the summer for us was playing baseball uh, out in the backyard with our best friend. 
for whatever reason, there was one day where he didn't come. And so I was upset about it. And so here's what I, I, I cooked up a plan. I was like, I'm going to run away from home and I'm going to go to his house. I'm four years old. And so I'm in my bedroom and I, I unlock the window and pull it up and I climb out the window and I step my feet onto the front lawn to go to my best friend's house. And as soon as I stepped onto the lawn and started walking out in the front yard, I thought, what am I doing? <laughs> I don't know how to get there. And, uh, but man, you know what? Now I, I shut the window behind me. I don't think I can get back in there. And then, so I was like, man, I'm, I'm in trouble. So I, <laughs> I, I went around to the front door and knocked <laughs> on it. And my mom opened it and I got a spanking. Um, <laughs> but I, like, I, I thought I wanted to run, run away from home and I got like two steps from the house and I recognized, you know what? I don't really think I want this, you know? And Jonah's finding that out. He wants to, to flee from the presence of God, and yet he ends up far away from the presence of God, and it's not actually what he wanted. And that's true for us. We don't always want what we think we want. And the first two verses of this chapter, chapter 2, give us the summary of what is happening in this story of, of Jonah being in the belly of the fish and crying out to God and God answering him. And it's, it's showing us that the wages of sin, that the wages of rebellion against God is death. That's what Paul says in Romans chapter 3. But then verses 3 and following start to give us the explanation. And what Jonah does, he says, God, you did this. And it's, it's, it's Jonah acknowledging that God was right to do this. You cast me into the sea. All your waves and your billows passed over me. I said, I'm driven away from your sight. This is what God has done, and, and, and Jonah admits, you were right to do this. And this is what repentance and confession are made up of. Confession is, is not just saying you're sorry, it's admitting, God, you're right, and I'm wrong. What you have said is right, the direction I have gone is wrong. That's what confession is. And for us to be ready to receive the mercy of God and to receive the deliverance that God wants to bring in our lives, we've got to come to the end of ourself, the end of our self-effort, and admit and confess to the Lord, you were right, I was wrong, what I have done is wrong. And there's a huge difference here, and, and scholars debate this with Jonah, okay? And I think there's, there's, there's some truth in all of it. There, there's a huge difference between being sorry about the consequences of your sin and being sorry about your sin. Okay, I, 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 do, I deal with this all the, times with, all the time with my kids. When they do something wrong and they get found out and they get in trouble and they suffer the consequences of their actions, they'll cry tears and they'll be upset and they will, uh, you know, say they're sorry and they'll, and they'll do all of that. And, and for the most part, oftentimes, they do all of that and all that sorrow that they show is merely so that they can get out of trouble. Merely so that the consequences of their wrong actions will be lifted. But repentance is more than regret. Repentance is not just you're sorry for the consequences of your sin. It's that you're sorry for your sin itself. I'm sorry that I did that. And so I try to, when I'm trying to teach my kids, when Ashley's trying to teach our kids, it's, it's, listen, it's not just that you're getting in trouble. It's that the action itself was wrong, and we want you to detest the action, not just the consequences of the action. And so there's a little bit of this, and here's the thing too, we are complex and messy beings, okay? And so there can be a genuine desire within us to despise the action while it's intermingled with our, you know, despising of the consequences. And so I'm thankful that God doesn't require us to have perfect repentance before He shows us mercy. But He's, he's working on us. There's a process, and we're going to see this with Jonah as well. And so we have to come to the end of ourselves and admit, God, you're right, I was wrong. Not just what I'm experiencing is wrong, but what I did in the first place to get to this point was wrong. And so Jonah comes to that point, to the end of himself and to his 
uh, admitting that what he has done is wrong. Again, I go back to uh, 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 Melville's classic book, Moby Dick, and the, the preacher in Moby Dick who's preaching the story of Jonah says this, as sinful as he is, Jonah does not weep and wail for direct deliverance. He never asked God to get him out of the belly of the fish. No, he doesn't weep and wail for direct deliverance. He feels his dreadful punishment is just. He leaves all his deliverance to God, contenting himself with this, that in spite of all his pains, he will still look towards God's holy temple. And here, shipmates, is true and faithful repentance. Not clamorous for pardon, but grateful for punishment. Shipmates, I do not place Jonah before you to be copied for his sin, but I do place him before you as a model for repentance. And so Jonah is driven away from the presence of God. He's been forsaken by God, but he says there, I look towards your temple, the place where the presence of God dwelt. He's looking towards God. He says that in verse 4. He says that in verse 7. Again, I've shared this with you before. In 1 Kings chapter 8, when the temple had been built and when Solomon was praying a prayer of dedication over the temple, Solomon, in that prayer of dedication, prays to God and he says, God, there's going to come a day when we're driven away from your presence, when we go into exile, when our enemies defeat us, when we're under your judgment. And when that happens, we will look back to this place, we will look back to the temple, we will cry out to you in repentance and confession, you will hear us and you will save us and you will deliver us. And so Jonah here is not only quoting Scripture, he's obeying Scripture, and he's crying out to God in his presence at the temple, and he's saying, God, rescue me. And here's the thing, the, the, the very thing that he was trying to run away from, the presence of God, is now his only hope and his only comfort in his distress. And I want to say to you, in the storms of your life, even when you're upset with, angry at God, I want you to understand, do not run away from Him, run towards Him. He will hear you. He will be merciful to you. And so Jonah prays toward the temple. We are called to pray to the presence of God through Jesus Christ. And we call out in our distress, and God hears us, and God answers us. And here's what the Bible says, all who call on the name of the Lord will be saved. And Jonah is saved. And here's the thing. The fish is not just the judgment of God on Jonah. The fish is the vehicle of God's deliverance of Jonah. As one preacher said, the, the fish is like a strange Noah's ark that rescues him from the water. This is the thing. He's thrown into the water. And just before he drowns, here comes this fish that grabs him and then carries him to where God wants him to go and sustains him for three days alive in the depths of the sea. And so we have this cry for salvation and God answers. And you see the switch there in the middle of verse 6 of chapter 2 where he says, yet you brought up my life from the pit. This is resurrection language. Jonah has gone down, 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 down as far as he can go, and now God brings him up. He brings him up from the belly of death. And so Jonah says there at the end of chapter 2 and verse 9, some scholars say, some preachers say, this is the, the theme verse of the entire Bible. Salvation belongs to the Lord. Here's what that means. You don't get to have a hand in your salvation. Salvation, when it's accomplished, has nothing to do with man and has everything to do with God. It has nothing to do with your good works. It has nothing to do with your obedience. It has to do with the work and the performance of God on your behalf. So Jonah confesses this, and then God rescues Jonah from the pit. And Jonah walks away from death 
bearing on his body the marks and the scars of the judgment of God to carry out the mission that God has given him to the Ninevites. And here's the thing. We see in chapter 2, really chapter 1 and chapter 2, all the, the theme of water, um, and we see this throughout the scriptures, that water is used not just as a symbol for cleansing, but water is often used as a symbol for judgment. And so we see this in uh, Jonah. We have uh, Jonah talks about the flood, the waves, the the billows, the, the seaweed wrapping around his head. He's, he's using this water language, and we see often throughout the Bible that, that water is a symbol of judgment. You think about uh, Genesis chapter 6, Noah and the ark and the, the flood. God uses water to judge the wickedness of the people on earth. Now, through that, he saves Noah and his family so they come out on dry ground on the other side. Think about the song we sang earlier that when the Israelites are coming out of slavery in Egypt, God parts the waters of the Red Sea. The Israelites go across on dry ground. The Egyptian army pursues them. God takes those walls of water. He collapses them down on the Egyptian army and wipes them out. He's judging Egypt and he's saving Israel through. And we see that here with Jonah. God uses a storm. God uses the water to judge his runaway prophet. Jonah is thrown into the waters of God's judgment, and then the fish carries him safely through to the other side. And all of this points us to the Lord Jesus Christ and what he has done for us. Because Jesus, when he comes on the scene, Jesus says two things, two things that are very interesting. When all of the, the critics who are around him say, we don't really believe you're the Messiah. We don't really think that you're the Messiah. So give us a sign that you actually are the chosen one of God. And Jesus says, I'm not going to give you one. You know what? I'll give you one, but it's not the one that you want. I'm going to give you the sign of Jonah. And as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the fish, I'm going to be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth, and then I'm going to be raised from the dead. He says, listen, you want this sign of favor and blessing, but I'm going to give you a sign of judgment. I'm going to take on myself, I'm going to take on my body the wrath of God against the sin of the world, and three days later I'm going to emerge from the grave. That's the only sign I'm giving to you to know that I'm the one that God has chosen. And that's why Jesus, when he's walking to Jerusalem, ready to face his death, he says to his disciples, I have a baptism that I must undergo. And he refers to the cross, and he refers to the judgment that he's going to receive in Jerusalem as a baptism. What he's saying is, listen, I'm going to be drowned under the wrath of God, and then three days later I'm going to be raised from the dead, and I'm doing all of that so that you can be delivered from your sin. That's the sign that Jesus gives. And then what happens? Jesus goes to the cross, he drowns in the wrath of God. Three days later, he's raised from the dead, and he walks away bearing the scars of the judgment of God to carry out his mission through his church. And the Bible says that this is what baptism pictures for us. Like Jonah, Christ walks away from death with his scars to carry out his mission, and we picture that in baptism. When Matt was baptized earlier, here's what we're saying in baptism. When I was baptized, let's use me as an example. When I was baptized as an eight-year-old boy, Aldea Road Baptist Church in Garland, Texas, what the church was saying to me is John Aiken is a sinner who deserves the judgment of God, who deserves to die, and who deserves to spend eternity in hell. But because John Aiken has put his faith and his trust in Jesus Christ, he's already died. He's already been buried 2,000 years ago with Jesus Christ. And when Jesus walked out on Easter morning, John Aiken walked out with him. And John Aiken has a mission to take that gospel to the ends of the earth. 
And that's what baptism pictures. We have been shown mercy in Jesus Christ, and so now we extend that mercy to the world around us. And Jonah says, look, I, I, I'm going to sacrifice to you. I'm going I'm to make good on my vows. And that's the same thing for us. Our bodies now are not our own. We are living sacrifices. We, we give a blank check to God and we say, listen, whatever price you want to write on that check, you write it. There is, there is nothing that He cannot ask from us that we should not give. And so we are called not only to receive mercy, but then to extend that mercy. And so Jonah here is given a second chance. God tells him, go and preach, and he does. We see in chapter 3, there's this amazing revival, and these people who are, are savage, who are vicious, who are violent, who then give their lives over to the Lord. Listen to what the Bible says there in verse 4 of chapter 3, verses 4 and 5. Jonah began to go into the city, going a day's journey, and he called out, Yet forty days, and Nineveh shall be overthrown. And the people of Nineveh believed God. They called for a fast and put on sackcloth from the greatest of them to the least of them. This whole city gives itself in repentance which is the sign of, of fasting and sackcloth and ashes, a symbol of repentance and faith. They believed God. And so the text tells us later in chapter 3 that God relents from the disaster that He was going to bring upon them. Now, that raises a question that people ask. Did God change His mind? Because there's other verses in the Bible that say God doesn't change His mind. So how are we supposed to, how are we supposed to reconcile that He said He was going to overthrow them in 40 days and, and He chooses not to. And, and listen, this is um, what scholars call phenomenological language. That's a big word. All that means is this is language of how we experience God is not, is not telling us that God changed His mind. Like, for, and we all, we all recognize this. For example, if you get on your weather app tonight and you see that sunrise is going to be at 6.30 tomorrow, you understand that scientifically, the sun's not actually going to rise, right? It's just our experience of the sun that it, that it rises over the horizon, right? And that's the exact same thing that's happening here in our relationship with God. It's not, it's not God that changes, it's our experience of God. My, da my dad said it this way, when we repent and change, it impacts our character, not God's. God never changes. He always forgives the repentant, and He's always wrathful towards the unrighteous. The change is really in our experience of God, and that's what Nineveh experiences. And here's the thing. Both God and Jonah wanted Nineveh to be overthrown. Jonah wanted them to be overthrown in judgment. God wanted them to be overthrown in mercy. In fact, the word that's used there in chapter 3, verse 4, the word overthrown is in other places, in Esther and the Psalms, for example, is actually translated in some places converted. And so that's what God wanted. God wanted the conversion of the Ninevites. And this teaches us something very important. Listen, in the Old Testament, when it comes to the way that Israel is supposed to relate to the nations— there's two ways that Israel is supposed to relate to the nations in the Old Testament. One, God calls Israel to be a blessing to the nations. And two, God says that Israel will conquer and subdue the nations. You say, well, how do you, how do you reconcile blessing with subduing, right? Blessing with conquering and the truth is it's, it's only the gospel that helps us understand that. We see that here in a glimpse of it here in Jonah chapter 3 where, where these Gentiles, these, these vicious, violent pagans bow the knee and go into a time of fasting and repentance merely at the word of a Jewish prophet. And that's what the gospel is showing us is that 
that the way that the nation of Israel will bless the Gentiles and subdue them is in Jesus Christ. Because right now in this room, there may be a few Jewish people in this room, but right now in this room, there is a mass of Gentiles, okay, bacon and pork eating Gentiles who have voluntarily bowed their knee to Jesus Christ as King. And so we have been subdued under the King of Israel, but in the same time we have been blessed by the King of Israel. Here's the, the thing, listen, it's, it's great to be a, a citizen of the United States of America, and when the, when the Star Spangled Banner is played, I stand to my feet and I put my hand over my heart, and I'm thankful to be an American, but I bow my knee to the King of Israel, not to the President of the United States. And in so doing, as I humble myself under the King of Israel, I receive the blessing that God has poured out on me. And so we see here the city of blood has been subdued without a sword being drawn. And we are called to take that message, the message of God's mercy to the nations so that they will bow the knee, not at the point of a sword, but at the proclamation of the gospel, bow their knee to Jesus Christ. Throughout the book, it's a key word, we'll talk more about this next week. The word great is used all throughout the book. And all the great things in the book obey God. There's a great wind, it does what God says. There's a great storm, it does what God says. There's a great fish, it does what God says. And now Nineveh, the great city, does what God says, and they receive the salvation of the Lord. And so I ask the question, will we share the mercy that we have been shown? So let me just give you three points of application just very, very quickly. Just take a second. First one is this. God in His mercy can still save and use you no matter how bad you've messed up. That's the story of Jonah. God can still save and use you no matter how bad you've messed up. God is a God of second chances. And so you have the opportunity tonight to receive a second chance from God. Don't spurn it, don't reject it, don't ignore it. You have an opportunity, no matter how bad you messed up. Some of you in the room tonight need to receive the mercy of God, the saving mercy of God for the first time. Some of you, maybe for the hundredth time, need to receive it. And I can tell you this, no matter how bad you messed up, God can save you and God can use you. It doesn't matter what excuse you bring. God, you say, you say John, I've, I've had an affair, okay? God can still save you. God can still use you. you say, John, I've, I've had an abortion, okay? God loves you. God can still save you. God can still use you. you say, John, I'm a drug addict, okay? God can still save you. God can still use you. Say, man, I've, I'm a prodigal who doesn't have a relationship with my parents, okay? God can still save you. God can still use you. It doesn't matter what you've done, no matter how bad you've messed up. He can rescue you and forgive you of your sins, and He can still use you to extend mercy to the people around you who need it so badly. And let me say this to those of you who are Christians, and one of the reasons why you don't share your faith, and one of the reasons why you're never a witness for Christ is because you say, you know what, I can't go back and witness to all my friends because they saw me at the lowest point in my life, and they know who I really am, and, and if I went and shared the gospel with them, I'd look like a hypocrite. And so let me just tell you what I've, I've told hundreds of people who've said that and made that excuse to me. Don't run away from that, lean into it, and say, listen, you know me better than anyone. You know what kind of sinner I am. So let me tell you what Jesus has done for me. Being his child is not about good behavior. If it was, I got no chance. 
But let me tell you about what Jesus has done for me and what he can do for you. And I'm not, I'm not resting in my good works, my performance. I'm resting in him and him alone. And so don't run away from it. Lean into it. God in his mercy can still save and use you no matter how bad you've messed up. Second, mercy of God must be verbally shared to be received. Must be verbally shared to be received. You know, there's a quote that is uh, attributed to St. Francis of Assisi that floats around in Christian circles from time to time. And the quote is, preach the gospel at all times, and if necessary, use words. You know what I think about that quote? It's hot garbage. As one preacher said, that's like saying, hey, give me your phone number, and if necessary, use digits. Like the gospel is words. You recognize that, right? Gospel means good news. And news is something that is shared, not, not something that is not verbally shared. And so we are called, the Bible says, Romans chapter 10, verse 17, how are they going to believe without a preacher? How are they going to believe unless you open your mouth and share? And so you need to share with the people who are around you that, that you don't know where they stand with God, that uh, those who are unchurched around you, you need to open up and to say, listen, just like Jonah, I've got a story to tell you. Not only a story about my sin, but a story about the mercy that God has shown me. And so I want to share that story with you. And so the mercy of God must be verbally shared to be received. And then the last is this. No one is too far gone for God's mercy or so good that they don't need God's mercy. No one is too far gone for God's mercy or too good that they don't need God's mercy. Remember the viciousness of Nineveh. And yet Nineveh here is shown the mercy of God. And it tells us nobody's outside the reach of God. And here's one of the challenges that we have. We fail to share the gospel sometimes because we think the people that we are called to share with either can't be reached or won't be reached. And so we like to do this thing like where we classify people as likely to be saved and not likely to be saved. And listen, if you go read your Bible, here's one truth that we learn about God. God is really good at saving the people that we don't think can be saved. And so don't give up the tough people in your life, or you think about tough people on the mission field outside the United States, like, like no, Muslims will never believe uh, in Jesus. They'll never give up Muhammad and follow Jesus. I've seen it happen. Well, Hindus will never get rid of the millions of gods they have and follow Jesus as their only God. I've seen it happen. And so whoever it is that you, you classify as they're too far gone or they're not going to listen to me anyways or it's not going to do any good or I've pled and pled and pled and pled and they're not hearing me, don't give up. There's no one who is outside of the love and the reach of God. God doesn't see our classifications. He sees sinners in need of grace. And here's the thing too, nobody is so good that they don't need the mercy of God. Jesus tells us about Jonah. He says, listen, the people of Nineveh are going to rise in the judgment and they're going to judge. He says to the people he's talking to, they're going to judge you because at the preaching of Jonah, they repented and someone greater than Jonah is here and you're not listening. And here's the thing, Jesus says that to religious people. And so let me just tell you, we, we get into this trap where we say all sin's the same and, and there's not one sin that's, be, that's worse than another. And that, that's true at one level. Like one sin can condemn you to hell for eternity. But here's the deal. All sin's not the same because the Bible is very clear that the more revelation you have of God, the more accountable you are to God. And so that's a good thing and a scary thing for everybody in this room because everybody in this room knows far more about God than the people of Nineveh ever knew. And they repented. And so you will be held accountable because you came to church every week or every month and you heard this gospel, and you heard this message, and you heard about what God did for you, and you heard about what Jesus is calling you to do, and you heard it, and you heard it, and you heard it, and you ignored it. So the Bible says, judgment will be worse for you. 
than it will be for people who never heard the gospel of Jesus Christ and yet died in their sin. And so, if you think that you're too good to receive the mercy of God, I want to plead with you, you're not. Repent, confess, admit your need of Him. When, I, um, when, when Ash and I were uh, dating and got married, we said to ourselves, you know what, if we ever have a son, we want to name him Judson. And the reason why is because we had learned about the story of Adoniram Judson, who was the first Baptist American missionary overseas. He went and served in Burma. And so we, we finally had a son. We named him Judson. But the story of Judson is remarkable. I'd encourage you, if you ever um, want to read a biography that's, that's, that's long about a missionary, read To the Golden Shore, uh, which is a, a wonderful biography about Adoniram Judson. But here's, here's the story of Judson. Judson was born into the family of a preacher. His dad was a pastor. And so he was raised in church and, and, and gave all indications of being a believer his entire life. And when he went to college as a young man, he graduated high school early, went as a, a young man to, to Brown University. And when he was there, he met, uh, he made a friend whose name was Jacob Eames. And Jacob was a deist who was not a, a believer, was not a Christian. And Jacob and his friendship with Adoniram Judson led Judson away from the faith, and Judson became a deist and stopped believing in God. And even when he, he was the valedictorian of his class, and when he gave his valedictory address, uh, he, he didn't uh, mention God or, or, or give uh, thanks to God, and even though it was a religious institution in those days. And uh, when he graduated, he went to his parents, and he told his parents, listen, I'm going to go, I'm going to move to New York, and I'm going to become a playwright and I don't want anything to do with you, and I don't want anything to do with the life that you have, but would you give me a horse so that I can get to New York and live the life that I want? And his parents were brokenhearted and, and hurt, but they gave him the horse, and he went to New York to try to become a playwright. And he, he found himself living with and hanging out with people that just kind of disgusted him, and he didn't like the life that he was living. And so, uh, he left, and he was traveling back home to where he was from. And uh, as he was traveling home, it got dark one night and there was a storm. And so he had to, he had to go into a, a town that he'd never been in. And he went into this little inn and he asked for a room. And they said, well, we only have one room available and it's next to a guy who is, who's, who's sick and, and he's in a lot of pain and he's, he's crying out. He's kind of dying. And, and so he's going to He's going to be loud, and it's going to keep you up. And Judson was like, well, listen, I, it's, it's the only place I've got, and so uh, this is where I'll stay. And so he goes and stays in that room, and throughout the night, he's hearing the screams of pain and the, the gasps of the man next to him, and he's, he's beginning to think to himself and to wrestle with himself, okay, I mean, if I were to die, am I ready for death? Am I, am I ready for what comes after? And then he, he kind of put that out of his mind, and he thought, you know, if your friend Jacob knew the way that you were talking right now, he would, he would think you're being ridiculous. He would think that's silly. And so, finally, he went to sleep, and he woke up the next morning. He went to pay his bill, and as he was leaving, he said, hey, um, the screams died down during the night. What happened to the guy in the room next to me? And the guy said, oh, he died. Um, he died last night. And so, Judson turned to leave, and he finally turned back, and for whatever reason, he said, hey, do you know his name? And the innkeeper said, yes, he was a, a student from Brown University. His name was Jacob Eames. And Judson was frozen in his tracks, and he said, okay, if, if what Jacob Eames has told me is, is right, this is, just, this is a coincidence, it's meaningless. But he could not bring himself to believe that it was an accident, and he said, you know what? God is, God is on my heels. God is coming after me, and God used that to turn Judson's life around and to, to turn Judson to him out of his, his waywardness and his rebellion, and then God sent him as a missionary to Burma. As I told you a couple of weeks ago, when he went to Burma, there were no Christians at all. It took seven years before there was one convert, and now 200 years later, there are about two million Christians in the nation of Myanmar, which is modern-day Burma, because God still turns around prodigals, and He still uses them for His glory. That's true for you. That's true for me. And so, the question for us is,
Will we share the mercy that we have received? And we ask you to bow your heads and close your eyes. I'm going to pray, and then we're going to go into a time of response to this message. And here's what I want to, I want to challenge you with. If you've never received the mercy of God, then tonight's the night. Listen, I want to plead with you. Jonah said to the people of Nineveh, he said, 40 days and Nineveh will be overturned. They didn't wait 40 days. They dropped to their knees right then in repentance and faith to God. And so today is the day of salvation. Tonight is the night of salvation. So I want to plead with you, do not leave this room tonight without knowing whether or not your eternity is settled with God. We're going to have pastors here at the front who would love to talk to you and explain to you how you can give your life to Jesus, how you can be delivered, how you can be freed, how you can receive eternal life before you leave. And so if that's you, I want to encourage you, come down, grab one of them by the hand and say, listen, I need to give my life to Jesus. Maybe you're here and you've believed in Christ, but you've never been obedient in baptism, as we saw from Matt earlier. And listen, I just want to plead with you, that's what you need to do. You need to show publicly, I've put my faith in Jesus. I died with him. I was buried with him. I've been raised with him. So if you need to be baptized, we want to encourage you to be baptized. You need to join with this church and get busy with us on the mission that God has given us to take the mercy of God to our neighbor and to the nations. We'd love to have you here. Maybe there's somebody in your life that you know that you need to share with. Maybe there's somebody in your life that for whatever reason you've thought to yourself, they're too far gone, they're not going to listen to me, it's not going to do any good. But you need to commit tonight before you leave, Lord, help me this week. Write a letter, write an email, ask them to coffee, ask them to dinner, go to their house. Because I need to share with them about the incredible mercy of God. Whatever it is that God's asking you to do, I pray that you would respond because those of us who have been shown mercy need to extend mercy to the world around us. Father, I pray in the name of Jesus that you would work during this time, that we'd be obedient to you. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Would you stand to your feet? We're going to sing. If you have a decision to make, you come right now while we sing.